Hello, and welcome to the Outer Circle Inner Stillness, conversations around spirituality, sobriety, the sober way of life, spiritual disciplines, and how they all work together. Uh, recently, I had the opportunity to travel up north to the Seattle area in Washington, in the Puget Sound on the coast, and get on a ferry across a foggy sea to Vashon Island. It is this delightful uh, this delightful forested island up in the Puget Sound, and you you get off the ferry and you uh, you drive up the road, and it's this winding road through fields, around the bay, up through hills, and you finally come to this long winding dirt driveway. Uh, midway up, you pass uh, the 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 Orthodox three bar cross. It's this big red emblem uh, nestled in the trees and shortly thereafter you come up to a all-merciful savior monastery and it is this little cluster of tiny buildings there's the there's the chapel it's like dark wood with the classic blue onion dome there's these uh, different cabins the the monk cells just brightly colored this little tiny village of tranquility and beauty and peace nestled in the forest and it's the most wonderful thing to to go on this long journey you know out of the city through industry across the sea uh, across the mountains and then to to come to this place of peace and uh, it's a really wonderful thing if you're ever in that area I highly recommend going to visit um, but here at the monastery uh, Abbot Trifon is the abbot and he's the he's the leader that had monk there uh also a, a writer and speaker about orthodox christian thought and i i asked him if he would be open to sharing some thoughts and some wisdom about the christian life um he has a, a long ago background in psychology and uh, he and i have talked a little bit about being a counselor and psychology and addictions and everything and so i thought that bringing a, a monastic perspective to these conversations around spiritual practice, uh, the sober way of life about recovery would be useful, if not interesting. So a couple of things to keep in mind for an episode like this. Um, on a technical note, so there are some technological glitches just in the way that we filmed it. Uh, there will be a couple of moments where the, the, the image lags a little bit as I was learning how to do the setup. So uh, the audio should still be good, so just hang tight through those moments and everything will be kind of smooth. Uh, on a content level, uh, always keep in mind that uh, the the monastic life is very distinct and very different from 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 lay people. Uh, it, monastics, monks, nuns, they're these men and women who their primary vocation is to God. And they they take themselves out of the world to gain clarity, to pray to enter the stillness, to wage war with demons, and to, to come away more holy and with, with more insights. Uh, not everyone can do this. And so as you listen to a monastic perspective, it's important to remember that it's not, not everything is going to translate neatly to our common everyday life. Most of us are not monastics. Most of us will not be monastics. So there always has to be a little bit of that translation that goes on. Um, also, uh, Abba Trifon in particular, he's a storyteller. And so there's a, there's, a, there's a flavor to how he conveys his truths and his information in that uh, there, there's a lot of story. And so it's, a, it's different than how we might 
uh, learn in a classroom because it's not necessarily here's a set of linear facts. Uh, learning from a story is like learning through metaphor. You have to be in it and experience it. So, uh, so keeping those things in mind that uh, you know we're we're venturing far out of the world to learn some perspectives that are in a way extreme because they're they're, they're monastic. So they're uh, so they're not going to be a complete fit for for what we do. But there's still insight there. You you step away from your life to gain perspective on it. And so there are valuable things that we can learn. There are valuable perspectives we can benefit from. At the very least, valuable perspectives that are worth pondering to some degree. And, and there's a lot of good stories. And it's really good to, to feel, to feel a truth, to experience the truth. Even if you don't know it with your intellect right away, that doesn't mean it's not true. That doesn't mean you're not benefiting from it. It's just a very different way of knowing. So then, thank you for listening. And... Here's a series of interviews, and I hope that you are greatly enriched by it. Thank you. Coming back to the, the Laprinzi's story, which is a really, really great metaphor and fun story. So one of my first counseling jobs was just down the alley from Laprinzi's. So I used to walk by, I walked by Laprinzi's on the way to the taco cart. So, you know, didn't <laughs> get quite the same physical benefit, but I know what you're talking about. Um, but it seems like they're it's still there. It's still there, I think. Yeah. So, uh, so there, but there's these two experiences of both being in in your position then of, of being being new or recognizing you have something to learn. And I think you're talking earlier about uh, you know every, you know when you're talking about learning from your students, um, it seems like that that learner mentality mm-hmm. is really vital. I'd say both in spirituality and in recovery mm-hmm. to always know. I, I even if I've been doing this for years and decades, uh, I still have things to learn, and I still can learn. Or I should be able to still be able to learn from from anyone who who can teach me, mm-hmm. uh, which would be why you know why we need a spiritual father, why we need a sponsor. Um, it seems like you're also talking about the the counterpart to that experience of um, maybe not like right right away, but like as soon as you have some reasonable sense of like kind of know what I'm doing to start participating in someone mm-hmm. else's life, um, you know. And this might happen differently in these different circles. Like I think one could become a good recovery sponsor, maybe a little bit more quickly than one would be qualified to be a spiritual father. I, I imagine there's a little bit more to that relationship, but but it does seem like mm, both recognizing there's something important that I have and I need to, to be giving it, but also it, it changes me in a way when I'm taking responsibility for someone else or opting to participate in someone else's growth or just you know reaching out to, to be connected, to be generous in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, especially around these daily disciplines. Um, once, once you know what, uh, once you know a little bit, to start being generous with that. Something that uh, many years ago, I was uh, one of the keynote speakers at Orthodox. Um, uh, Orthodox, what is the name of that group? Orthodox uh, Montana. No, um, uh, Orthodox Christian Fellowship mm. on the campus. I used to be a chaplain for the regional area here. And then uh, I would go once a year to um, St. Nicholas Ranch uh, down in Northern California in Dunlap, a Greek Orthodox-run camp. And I would be there for a week, and and they'd have all these young people that would come there for this uh, college experience with fellow Orthodox Christians. And I remember thinking, or, or observing, 
how bonded these young people were, even though they only saw each other, most of them, once a year. But all of a sudden, they're with fellow Orthodox Christians. They're going to liturgy together. They're, they're having uh, spiritual talks, and they're all together. They're doing hikes. They're doing groundwork around uh, Life-Giving Spring Monastery, uh, the, the women's monastery there. And I looked at that, and I thought, how sad that these guys don't have, young men and women, don't have each other throughout the year. So I talked to a couple of them, and I ended up founding uh, the, the Salish Brotherhood of St. John the Wonderworker. And there's over 80-some members now. And every year, twice a year, we have retreats here at the monastery, young men's retreats. Um, and uh, the most we've had at one time would be 18, averaging around 14. In the summertime, they set up tents out in the forest. And in the winter, which we'll have one coming up, uh, they'll, uh, we put mats down in the trapeze and they put their, their sleeping bags there and that's where they stay. What, what, what I see happening with that is that they're building a bond of brotherhood. And so this Salish brotherhood is not about it's not my thing. It's their thing. I started it, but then I sit around. I step back and I watch it. They have their own Facebook page. Uh, when they get together, it's just the other day, we had a whole bunch of young men come who are part of that. They just came out for a day trip. Um, the networking that I see happening, it's the same way with MontanaCon, the Orthodox MontanaCon in, in Butte. Uh, you know, I mean, any any young men that might be watching this should uh, connect up with Orthodox MontanaCon, uh, and uh, uh, and then there are YouTube or there are um, uh, podcasts out there and blogs that are geared towards uh, young men in particular. Um, like, for instance, at MontanaCon, there were 150 young people showed up. 95% of them were young men. And they came from all over the country. And I was one of the speakers, uh, along with Metropolitan Jonah and three young men who are all scholars. And I remember all the fellowship that happened there. I remember going out... Uh, for the underground tour with a bunch of the guys. Um, I remember our, our, our common meals together. Um, I remember one young man came over and, and he brought a bottle of some high-end scotch or something and served the Metropolitan and I a little uh, shot of scotch. It, 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 what it was doing is it was, it was building up what's missing in our society community. Mm. We don't have community anymore. Mm. Everybody's off doing their own things. Yeah. And even in families. But as Orthodox Christians, if we want the church to have the impact and our faith to have the impact that it should have and that it did for past generations, we need to do what they did in past generations. We need to linger. We need to have church 
meals after liturgy on Sunday, not just a quick coffee hour and a donut. We have to have a church. We sit down together and we eat. We get to know one another. On Sundays after the liturgy here at the monastery, we have a common meal. And, and for me, sitting at the monastic table and watching everyone, there's a young man that comes from Tacoma every year. He's not even Orthodox yet. He's now a catechumen. But he told me that he had been preparing to move to Arkansas. And then he heard about the monastery and he came out and he not only decided that he didn't want to leave the area where the monastery is, is but he wanted to be Orthodox. And now he's a catechumen. And this young man comes every Saturday and every Sunday. Uh, there's a young man who's a, a soldier at Fort Lewis. The same thing. I mean, my gosh, this young man is well-read. When I get a text message from him, it's like I've gotten a text message from, from some elder somewhere. Because, you know, like the last one I got from him, he, he started off with, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then he said what he needed to say. But this guy, Christ, is permeating his life. And this young man is a reader. And so here he is, a Fort Lewis guy, a soldier. And he comes out to the monastery for the weekend. I mean, really? His friends must think he's nuts. Yeah, they're probably going out heavy drinking all, all you know, the weekend. That's really capturing again, like what we were talking about, the way that like Christianity isn't an add-on. It doesn't make a good add-on to your life. It really has to be like a central focus, and as such, becomes really important. everything else is the add-on. Yeah. Um, to, to a slightly lesser degree, I mean, I would, I would say the same thing about like sobriety recovery work too. Like it, it's not something you can do part-time. It very much has to become like a central focus. And, you know, and when one can do recovery as a spiritual discipline or as one is growing in the faith, also growing in sobriety too, you know, you, you know, even the better, but, um, yeah, there's this way of it's, you know, this isn't just something I do in the weekends. Um, uh, although that might be when I most often gather with people, but there's just a way of like, yeah, this is, this is, this is, this is my deepest reality. This is my hyper all encompassing reality. And yeah, everything in my life has to come back to that. And, and I should be letting this now affect everything about my life. Um, I'd be curious, uh, maybe, maybe one, one more thread uh, before, before we, we wrap a little bit. Uh, I was really loving hearing you talk about the, the retreats and the gatherings with, with, with the men and having these really beautiful times together. It's really encouraging to know that, like you know, this work isn't all struggle. There's some really beautiful moments. That said, there is a lot of struggle that happens. Um, one of my one of my wonderings is, uh, as we struggle, as we suffer, whether just as I'm struggling to to grow in in you know better mental health, better sobriety, or even more so as I'm struggling as part of my part of my spiritual walk, part of my Christian faith. Um, I think we're, we know that uh, struggle and suffering are, are good for us in the long run. What I wonder is how does it happen? Like, how do I make suffering, how do I turn suffering into spiritual gain versus just suffering for suffering's sake or suffering out of pride or, or, or self, self-criticism or something? But what are some like mindsets or things to remember or to have in place to, to really get 
to really derive the spiritual gain out of out of suffering? I think one of the benefits of a huge benefit of of organizing our life around community is that in doing so, there's always going to be someone in, in that little community of ours that's going through a difficult time. They're going through a divorce. They're, they, uh, uh, they, they flunked out of college or uh, they lost their job, you know. But if they have friends that are true friends and who really care about them, they're going to get through it because they've got the support of their friends. Um, they're not alone. I think that a lot of times uh, when people resort to suicide, it's because they feel utterly alone and utterly powerless to make that change. They don't know what to do. And so if they are in community together, um, they, uh, they have their friends. I, I remember once when I was uh, just about to leave my previous life and I went into a restaurant in Portland. It was a hotel restaurant, and I used to go there a lot for breakfast. And there was a table nearby, a big round table, and every time there was one day a week, um, I think it was Thursday, when I, there always would be a group of about five to seven women, women sitting around, and they were all middle-aged women, sitting around having breakfast together. And finally, when I was ready to leave and I was moving away, um, <clears throat> I left the lunch counter and I after paid the bill and I had already t told the waitress I'm paying for theirs. So I paid for the breakfast for every one of those women. And then I went over and I said, I just want you to know that I've paid for your breakfast. This is my last time here. And, and I wanted you to know that it's, it's always meant a lot to me to see all of you here. Tell me your story. Well, it turned out that they had all gone to a prep school together in Spokane. And when they graduated from their prep school, they all made a commitment to one another that they would stay fast friends and that they would meet regularly. And those that still lived in Portland decided to meet for breakfast once a week at this restaurant. And they did. And then this one old woman said to me, I say old now that I'm 77, oh, God, I'm in <laughs> denial. Um, but she said to me, the value is that we don't have, uh, that we have with one another, is that we don't have to introduce ourselves and say, oh, here, here, here's who I am. Because everybody here knows who I am. And this is one of the benefits of having an extended family, both um, physically as as my our cousins and grandparents and so on, but also in the church. You know, we shouldn't go to church with, oh, as soon as liturgy's over with, I'm out of here. Because that prevents us from having a personal relationship with anybody. 
I remember one time I told somebody, you know, this idea that everybody has to have a spiritual father is, is not necessary. I mean, a spiritual father or a spiritual mother, that's a complete different relationship. And not everyone, most people don't have one. But they do have a confessor. They have their parish priest. And they should make a habit of going to confession as frequently as possible. But what they also have is they have brothers and sisters who are part of the body of Christ. And I remember one time when somebody says, I don't know anybody in my parish that I, I, I don't have a priest as a, confess, as, a, as a spiritual father, and I don't know what to do. And I happen to be a, a, I happen to know that particular parish, and I said, you know, there is an old woman by the name of. I said, why don't you hang out with her for during the meal on Sunday, and get to know her. And so they said, why? And I said, because she's a very deep spiritual woman, not a layman. Or she's a layman, she's not a, uh, a nun, uh, she's not the priest's wife. She's just this old woman who has, for, for most of her life, made the church as the center. And I said, you, there's a lot you could learn from her. And that's exactly what happened. Hmm. I love that you mentioned that too, because... There, there, there are a lot of you know unsung heroes or you know non non clergy non monastic lady who like you said they they made this their center and they they and, and especially especially the, the the older folks they 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 know stuff and and you can kind of tell these people sometimes because they're not going to be like out in the center I mean sometimes they'll be out calling attention to themselves but a lot of times they're going to be like more quiet in the background or more quietly just like checking in on you or. Uh, you know, sometimes they need to be sought out, but um, but when sought out, seem like really excited to be to be approached, and can be these tremendous founts of, of wisdom and companionship, mm -hmm. and um, yeah, some some of that parental guidance, which again, <laughs> another tangent we won't get into, like the lack of parental guidance, you know, <laughs> but uh, but it seems like there there is a, a version of that that can be available for for people who seek it out um, on a on a professional level, on a clerical level, or but sometimes even just on a hey, these are the these are the babushki in our family. We we ought to we have to listen to their stories more. It's sort of like when I was growing up, uh, it was an age where my grandparents all lived in San, in Spokane, mm -hmm. and in fact, at one point um, when I was really little, we lived one house away from one of my grandmothers, and I used to play over in her yard all the time, and. I would be there when she was out tending her garden, you know, or uh, it, it, it was this older generation that loved us as children and, uh, and we learned from them, you know, um, and we don't have that today because everybody has moved off, you know. Uh, the idea of, of when you reach a certain age, you know, buying into senior housing somewhere. Or, you know, in my own family, you know, my cousins, everybody's stretched out across the nation. I've got one of my closest cousins lives in Florida. 
Another one lives in Manhattan Beach, California. These are people I love, and I rarely ever see them. Uh, it's it's We've all been distanced from one another. And then to compound that, um, each one of us is struggling with, uh, and I've seen this at family gatherings a few times that I've been, I've seen where even even at a gathering like that, you've got an old cousin texting somebody. You know, I like the idea of people getting in the habit, especially with their children. When the children come home from school, if you've allowed them to have an iPhone, which I don't think is a good idea, but if you have allowed them, oh, mom, everybody has one at school. Tell them when they come home, put it, turn it off and put it in the basket. And then show the importance of that by putting your own cell phone in the basket so that when you come home from work, you turn off yours as well and it goes in the basket and it's not turned on till next morning. And get rid of the television sets in your children's rooms. And, uh, and, and when the ch kids are working on studies with their laptop in their rooms, check in occasion. Not as a spy, but, oh, I brought you some hot chocolate. Here's a cup of hot cocoa. Uh, or I, I baked cake today. Here's a have a little slice of cake and milk. And that way, it doesn't appear to the child that you're spying on them. But it demonstrates that you care for them. And that you love them enough that you baked a cake for them. And... The same way when you're out with a friend, make a pact. When you go to the restaurant or the coffee house with your friends, everybody turns off their phones so that nobody's, nothing is that important. You know, I, I uh, when I, the 18 years that I put on as a chaplain, I, I couldn't turn my phone off, even at night. Oh, that'd be hard. Because that's the way the departments would get a hold of me in an emergency. And a good many of the emergencies happened in the dead of night. So I would go to bed with them, with my phone next to me on so that I could be awakened, you know, for an emergency. Um, but that's not a good place to be. Mm. You know, if you're, if you're in that position, you don't have a choice. Uh, I remember when I was glad that it, when that they changed the thing about the pagers because I remember once I was at a concert and my pager went off, you know, and every single head in in the room of about four hundred people looked around to see where that horrible sound was coming from, and I'm sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, you know, <laughs> trying to turn the darn thing off. Oh. Uh, so now, if, if if so, then later when when they switched it over. Uh, to phones, I uh, can have it on vibrate. And it's gone off a couple of times since we've been here and, and I don't have to answer it. You know, so that's a better thing if you have to have it on. Mm -hmm. But the best thing to do is not have it on at all when you're with your friends or with your, with your family. Mm -hmm. Turn it off. Mm -hmm. And yeah. if you've got children, 
demonstrate the importance of doing that by being the one who turns yours off first. Yeah. I love that and I appreciate that. It's a it's I mean it's a good reminder for me as a as a husband, as a father, as a as a friend who goes to coffee with friends and yeah, at this point we're like all like we have fancy jobs, so that means we have like more than one phone. Which, you know, I love and I hate phones and I mostly hate them. But but I, I think that's what it would on it. What I want to emphasize on this is again recognizing the the, the incredible power of the, of the human encounter, and I mean attachment science supports this, and also you know spiritually speaking, I mean I mean we were made in the image of God, and when that that image greets that image, it's it can be this really holy encounter, and you know it's would not be good to to miss out on that by any means. Well, I can tell you that just, and I've heard this from a lot of other of older people like myself how inspiring it is. Like, for instance, we have on a Sunday, any given Sunday, the majority of people that are in our monastery's temple for liturgy are young men. Hmm. Uh, when I've been at Mother Markella's monastery in uh, Dunlap, uh, I see this the same thing, only young women. Mm-hmm. And uh, when, when young people have as their friends people who are walking with Christ and on a journey to the into the heart of God as a as as part of this body of Christ they can get through a lot and and a lot of times even that uh if the only people you're hanging out with are those who do not have the church and do not have God, and maybe even self-proclaimed atheists, the impact that that's going to have on you is going to be lasting. Yeah. So we need to have, we need to work on having friendships with people who are on the same journey. doesn't mean you can't have friends who are not, but even there, uh, the number of times, it's interesting, I was speaking at one of the colleges a few years ago in the area, university, and uh, and it was a religion class, and I was a guest lecturer. And the professor told me ahead of time that most of the people in her class were atheists. And they were required, it was specific Lutheran University, they were required to have this class. So they weren't there because they wanted a religious class, they were there because it was part of the curriculum. And I remember almost every time I spoke there, I could look out at those students and I could see the, um, the a light going on. Because it was sort of like, oh, is this Christianity? I had no idea. That's interesting. And so you don't have to be out giving pamphlets to people to get them to Christ. In fact, that could be counterproductive, as the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witness clearly demonstrate. But rather, it is sharing the faith and letting other people see the impact that it has had on your life and they're thinking, gee, maybe there is a place for me. Maybe this is what I need. And I remember once a, uh, there was a, uh, I did a 
blessing at uh, Seattle Pacific University. I I used to lecture there pretty regularly, but there was a group of Orthodox Christians there. And so once a year after Theophany, I would go and bless their dorm rooms. And I remember one time I went into a dorm room uh, in one of the taller buildings there. And we got up, went up the elevator, we're walking down the hall, we turned into this guy's room, and I did the blessing. But I noticed, and, and he had the far desk. And I said, uh, where are your icons? And he says, oh, I've got one here. And it was a little icon card of the Holy Virgin propped up on his desk. You could hardly see it. And I looked at that and I said, did you bring that out of your desk drawer because you knew I was coming? And there was kind of this silent moment. And he said, yeah. And I said, what about all the icons you have in your home? I'm sure as an Orthodox Christian, it, you have a lot of icons in your bedroom at home. Why aren't they here? And he says, well, I don't want to foist my religion on my roommate. And I looked over at his roommate's desk, and the roommate wasn't there. And I said, why? He's foisting his religion on you. Mm -hmm. Because he had a big picture of Madonna over his desk. Mm -hmm. Not the Holy Virgin. Not the Holy Madonna. <laughs> no. yeah. and, and, and so then, the following year, I'm doing the same thing. The same young man walking down there, and I'm thinking, oh, I sure hope he was listening. I walk into that room. And that space between the two desks was a wall of icons mm. with a lampada hanging <laughs> and burning. And I, my first thought was, uh, well, this is probably going a little overboard with your roommate. And I said, how's your roommate feel about these? And he says, oh, my roommate is Orthodox. Half the icons are his, and we went in together to buy the Lampada. <laughs> and he says, and that's him right there. Yeah. And the roommate was the guy that had the Madonna thing up. Yeah. So <laughs> Madonna was down, hopefully in a wastebasket, and the guy had gone in. And you know what happened? It's because this young man brought a large icon of the Holy Virgin and put over his desk. Hmm. And that became the focal point of inquiry. Mm -hmm. Why, what is this about? Yeah. What is orthodoxy? Uh, that's awesome. Why are you orthodox? And you know, the thing is, and I've seen this on college campuses everywhere. I, one of my funniest moments is I remember a young man who was studying at, at, uh, at, uh, Pacific Lutheran University to be a Lutheran minister. And he and a bunch of his fellow students came with their professor to visit the monastery and attend a service. And I, as a former professor, I like to know what your studies are. And, you know, so I asked this guy, I asked everybody, but I said, so what is your major? Well, I'm going to be a, studying to be a Lutheran minister. And I said, no, you're not. He says, what? And I said, you're not going to be a Lutheran minister. I said, you've just discovered orthodoxy. You're going to be orthodox. 
So about a year later, we've got a young man here on retreat. And one of my monks said, do you remember him? And I said, no. He says, well, he was here with that class from Pacific Lutheran University. And I, I said, I sure don't remember him. And he said, that's because he's got long hair and a beard now. <laughs> and he's Orthodox. Mm -hmm. So the guy that was going to be a Lutheran minister became Orthodox and decided he wanted to be a priest. Mm. That's really exciting the way that people can change and uh, and also really significant just noting the 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 seeds that get planted that's that's bringing one way or the other. Uh, I mean, you're, you're sharing some really exciting stories around people coming coming to the true faith. I imagine though there are maybe just as many like inverse moments not from you, but like you know for you know we we can discourage people along the way also. So. Uh, you know, um, the worst thing I think that we can do as Orthodox Christians is be pushy and pompous mm -hmm. about our faith. I have seen that over and over. I remember one time a young man who was um, uh, foisting his orthodoxy on his roommate by plastering their common living room with icons mm -hmm. and doing his private prayers from the prayer book in front of those icons. Mm -hmm. And one day when I stopped in to say hello, and his roommate was there, and his roommate said, I am probably going to move out. I can't take it any longer. This guy keeps doing all these services. And he says, this is our common room, and it's not my room. It's his room. Mm -hmm. And and so I, I talked to this young man about it. I said, I said, you know, you're going to do more to share your Orthodox faith with your roommate if you close the door and you have your icon corner in your room and you quietly do your prayers. I said, God isn't hard of hearing. Mm -hmm. You don't even have to say them out loud. But you're demonstrating the, the truth of Orthodoxy not only by how you're living your life as an Orthodox Christian in prayer and going to the services, but you're demonstrating your love and respect for your roommate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I and the same thing happened with my parents. I remember when I first uh, decided to become Orthodox, and and a monk, and after my in, in three years in novitiate, and I went to Coeur d'Alene to visit my parents, and my mother was uh, kind of I could tell she was appalled. And she said something very revealing. She says, you, you were, remind me of when you became a hippie. She said, you're all of a sudden, you're now wearing weird clothes and things around your neck and, you're, and you um, are growing your hair long and your beard long and, and you smell of incense. <laughs> and I thought, <clears throat> and then she would not let me take them out for dinner like I used to do. Mm. And I knew it wasn't because, oh, I'm going to make your favorite stuff. It was because she didn't want to be seen publicly with me because mm -hmm. she thought everybody was looking at me and thinking, what's this weird guy? Mm -hmm. Eventually, she realized that people in Idaho, northern Idaho, were looking at me and being extremely outgoing and friendly because they wanted to prove that they weren't anti-Semites. <laughs> Because <laughs> people thought I was a rabbi. Right, right, right. You know, yeah. but, but it was because during that time, northern Idaho was the home of the Aryan race people and mm. Nazis. Mm -hmm. 
None of the locals knew about them. The nation did because it was on the news, but locals never saw them. And they were such a tiny minority, nobody was aware of them. Mm -hmm. But when they found out that everybody around the country thinks Northern Idaho is are fill, filled with white supremacists and Nazis, and they see somebody like me, oh, I'm going to be nice to him. I'm going to prove I'm not mm -hmm. one of them. So, But what I did is I asked God to help me become the very best son I could be to my parents. Mm -hmm. I would call them weekly. How are you doing, Mom? How are you doing, Dad? I would make every effort to get over there every three or four months to spend a few days with them, have time with them. And then one day, we're sitting around their dining room table having dinner, and I said to my mother, what is going on with you? You're not the happy person you used to be. Oh, I'm fine. And I looked at my dad and he rolled his eyes. And then I said, no, seriously, mom, what's going on? <clears throat> she says, well, she says, we're just very unhappy with the Lutheran church. She says, it's lost all of its sense of reverence. She says, in, in my day, people would come into church, they'd slip into the pew, they'd bow their heads and pray until the service started. And when the service ended, everybody was ushered out, starting with the first pews, and no one said a word until they got out in the narthex and greeted the pastor and went into the parish hall. And now everybody's talking, talking, talking. And she said, we're going to start looking for another Lutheran church. And I said, Mom, you've been to every Lutheran church in Coeur d'Alene. And she said, well, we're going to look into Christ the King. And I said, oh, the Missouri Synod Church? I said, you've already been there once, and it was a praise service. <laughs> she said, it, I said, it wasn't what you wanted. So I said, well, then well, maybe we'll look into the Episcopal Church. And I said, oh, well, you know, the Episcopal Church, you can believe anything or nothing. And you'll probably have a woman minister or bishop. And I said, so why are you bothering she said, I said, why don't you go to St. John the Baptist Orthodox Church in Post Falls? And my mother said, oh, well, maybe we'll check it out sometime. They had been there once when I was preaching. Mm -hmm. I said, and then I looked at my dad and I said, dad, who's the head of a Christian household? And he smiled and he knew what I was up to. <laughs> and he said, well, the husband, of course. Where are you going to church on Sunday, dad? St. John the Baptist Orthodox Church. And my mother giggled, and they went to St. John the Orthodox Church, St. John the Baptist. And that Sunday afternoon, my mother called me, and she said, when people found out that we were your parents, they treated us like celebrities. <laughs> and within two months, my parents were catechumens. Mm. And then I went to Coeur d'Alene, and together with their priest, Father Gregory Horton, we, we baptized them and chrismated Aww. them into the church. They're both dead. My dad is the first person to be buried in the church cemetery behind the church, and my mother is next to him. Mm -hmm. And as an, as an added little bonus, when I was doing her funeral, and we were, uh, the church, the, the, there'd been a big storm, a snowstorm coming through. So the church parking lot and the route from the church door to back to the cemetery mm -hmm. was all dug out. But as we're, and it was a sunny day, but by the time of the end of the liturgy, the funeral liturgy, and we're coming out with the casket, it had started to snow. Mm -hmm. 
So I'm standing there with holy water, blessing her casket, and the snow's coming down, and all of a sudden, I think, thought, this is like that scene, that opening scene of the movie Dr. Zhivago, which is one of my favorite movies, where the future Dr. Zhivago, who's a little boy, is attending with his grand, with his uncle and his wife, he's attending his mother's funeral. And the casket is being lowered down as the priest is blessing it with holy water. And the priest is this old priest with a long beard. And I'm thinking, God has just gifted me this moment to be the old priest, only I'm not burying Dr. Shivago's mother, I'm burying my own mother. And it, and it just kind of filled my heart with joy hmm. that, that God was essentially honoring my mother by giving me that moment that I had so treasured in Dr. Shivago. Hmm. That's such a beautiful image. Thank you for sharing your story and a lot of stories. And it's uh, it's been a fun arc from like your your development, your your childhood to now coming to a, a type of fullness of now kind of ushering your parents into the fullness of the faith too. Um, I really appreciate uh, getting to collect some stories and hear some wisdom. And um, yeah, thank my you so last much. final thing to say yes, to please. all those who may view this is abatreefund.com. Come home. <laughs> Come home to orthodoxy. Love you. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for joining us. More uh, Morco Inner Stillness, uh, reflections on the spiritual life and the uh, sobriety life and where they intersect and are often talking about the same thing. Uh, so I'm back with uh, Abba Trifon here at Almer Civil Savior Monastery on Vashon Island. Uh, so I wanted to talk a little bit more, particularly around... Um, Around, around addiction and what is addiction. So as uh, as we know, uh, and as the, the viewer may know, so there's a lot of ideas and theories around what, what addiction is or what isn't it. You know, is it just criminality? Is it just a brain disease? Is it a moral choice only? Is it a trauma reaction? Uh, is it dissociation? Um, and all of those perspectives have, well, most of those have something to offer. Uh, I don't think the criminality model has much to offer very much at all, but, um, but there, there's a lot of ideas around this really peculiar phenomenon of I'm doing this thing and I know it's destroying my life, but I keep doing it anyway. What's the deal? Um, and I know in in a lot of spiritual thought, there's the more this language of the, the passions, these these forces within us that we that we wrestle with. Um, you know, and orthodoxy is very much like that as well. So, what I'd be curious um, to hear from you, Abbot Trivon, is having some experience in the counseling world and now also having experience in the monastic world. Um, what is your sense of what addiction is, what causes it, and most, particular, most particularly, uh, what does a person need in order to, to heal from it? Well, first of all, I think that there are um, uh, physical traits that a person can inherit uh, that would cause some Addictions. I had my my grandfather, uh, my mother's dad, uh, died of alcoholism, and I have a couple cousins that are alcoholics, 
And I know that when I was in college, I was actually afraid to even drink wine with my friends for fear that I had that in me. And I thank God I don't. Um, it would be very difficult to be an Orthodox priest and not be able to have a, a shot of vodka on occasion, <laughs> you know. Um, so uh, I don't have that problem. But uh, in my years as a, a therapist, I certainly knew people that had addiction problems. And uh, and I, I knew lots of people, of course, that had psychological problems. Uh, I can remember one case where... Uh, a couple brought in their 17-year-old son, and they said that uh, he had been diagnosed as manic-depressive by his doctor. And I counseled with him up for about 45 minutes, and and then I told him that next week, starting that very day, I wanted him to uh, get a tablet and write in journal form his um, thoughts while running, and I told him, I want you to run for 40 minutes every day. And then when you come back next week, I'm going to ask you to, um, to share what you've written. And by the third day, he was no longer depressed. And I told his parents that uh, your son isn't manic depressive. He's inert. He needs to get out and he needs to... Uh, to run every day, he needs to be physically active. Uh, as a, the different, one of the differences between a psychiatrist and a psychologist is that uh, psychiatrists, uh, as medical doctors, essentially have the right to uh, prescribe drugs. And if a psychologist feels that he has a patient that needs drugs, then he's going to have to refer him. I once told uh, I had two friends back when. Uh, who were twin brothers, and one of them was a psychiatrist and the other was a psychologist. And I remember clearly the time we were sitting uh, in a sauna after a workout, and uh, and our the psychiatrist brother was always making little digs at us, like we were somehow less than he was because we were psychologists. And I finally had it, and I said, are you aware of what most psychologists think of psychiatrists? And he kind of looked at me and I said, we think that you are individuals who flunked surgery in medical school and went on and took a few extra courses in psychology <laughs> so that you could dispense drugs. And oh, was he angry. He got up and left the room, and I never saw him again. I mean, he was that was the end. His brother laughed after his own twin brother left and thanked me for saying that. He says, I've been thinking about that for years. I've never had the nerve to tell my brother that that's what we think of them. So um, that is a little side note. Uh, I think that there are times when... Uh, addictions are can be related to some physical problem that the person has that uh, that they probably need some sort of medication or you know to get through it. But I also believe that more often than not, uh, it's either the trauma that they've experienced as children in their family, or some kind of trauma in their life 
um, or simply like happens with a lot of young people, uh, they get in the wrong crowd at school and they end up, you know, drinking heavily and or smoking pot heavily or whatever, taking other drugs. And the next thing we know, their whole life is a downward spiral. You know, they're, they're addicted. And um, so I guess I would have to say that I think the answer to such situations is one where they need to go inward in, into the heart. And, uh, and this is where I think that uh, the church as the hospital of the soul is important because it's, it's in the hospital of the soul that we receive uh, healing. And, uh, and I have had enough experience in my life, both as a, as a priest, as a psychologist, and as a police chaplain, to know that, I, that that's absolutely true. I think part of the problem today is that um, in many circles, psychology has replaced religion as a new religion. It's a sort of a secular religion. Uh, and I think that as long as we keep a balance, you know, I'm not against psychology, but I think it needs to be approached in a balanced way. And I think that if somebody is, is suffering from, from extreme difficulties and just living out their lives in a happy way, that oftentimes it's, it has to do with um, that they have separated any kind of religious or spiritual life uh, for a life that is totally uh, psychological in nature. And yet um, it's really all together. You know, we're not, uh, uh, in fact, I, I would have to say that I think I'm a better psychologist now than I was back when I was an actual uh, licensed psychologist. I could kind of see that, like once you're able to like factor in the spiritual life, uh, I, I kind of get that sense sometimes you know, being in the counseling, the psychology world, uh, not a doctorate in case anybody's asking, <laughs> asking, I have a master's degree. Um, but, but I do get the sense of people coming to me, seeking things that they might otherwise seek from a priest. Things like I need a confidant, I need absolution, I need comfort, I need guidance. Uh, I need a conduit to the spiritual, which again, professionally, I, I can only offer in, in minuscule little ways. Um, but, uh, but, uh, the, this thing you're talking about too, about the, um, the, all of the things being, being, being connected. It was interesting. I was just talking with a really good friend about the, this sense of there's the, the material and the spiritual as like separate things and thinking, well, I think that divide might actually be more artificial than not, and that things are more interconnected. Um, it sounds like you're, you're observing that as well. I think um, I remember um, once when I was, uh, I don't remember whether it was a conference or just sitting around uh, with some of my, um, my uh, friends, um, my colleagues. But I remember one of the guys said that it's too bad we don't have uh, absolution like the Catholics. Mm -hmm. Because he said that a lot of times all that's really necessary to help somebody uh, get beyond the guilt 
of things that they've done in their lives or think people that they've hurt would be just simply, I absolve you. And we don't have the ability to do that. Mm-hmm. I think I think that this is an example of uh, of where the two can come together to help someone, you know. So there have been times when I have had people come to me that I recommended they see a psychologist because I felt think that they need more in depth uh, an in depth look at what's going on in their lives. And uh, and not to be, uh, uh, but at the same, and and I and the other thing I would say is that there's an awful lot of clergy who have literally no skills in counseling. They they have no training. Uh, they're good at liturgics, but they're not good at counseling. And uh, and w- which is where a lot of times a spiritual father enters into it because a spiritual father has these gifts that you know to help somebody through a, a, a diff- you know I've even had priests uh, refer people to me as a uh, as a possible um, a spiritual father to them because he felt like he either didn't have the time to sit with them going through a lot of stuff or. Uh, he didn't have the know-how or the skills to do that, and I think that's true. And I think that in cases like that, it's a uh, the, the priest is to be commended that he does see his limitations and passes it on to somebody else. Um, but I, but I do believe that uh, that ultimately, just about every everything that could be plaguing an individual. Uh, can be healed uh, within the life of the church. Mm, absolutely, within the life of the church. You had talked about the importance of, of going inward as well, which I would uh, I would fully agree with that. I mean, it's part of the title of the podcast, <laughs> The Inner Stillness. Um, what's your sense, though, of as someone is in recovery from, from addiction, from trauma, uh, sometimes people will want to put a lot of emphasis on, you know, I need a, a new job, a new new home. I need to change my my my, my lifestyle um, into some of these external things, which sometimes aren't bad. But but a but are you thinking that it's more important to address the the inner world than the outer world, or how do you balance that? I think it's a good thing to balance the two. Mm-hmm. I don't think that uh, that one, you know, I think that. It's possible for someone who puts so much emphasis on the inner life that they uh, that they they don't have the skills uh, or the know-how to deal with the pressures of of an everyday world, you know. And and it's those types that sometimes drive away the very people, the very friends or family members that could be there for them because the persons are like, oh my gosh, you know, we're, you know, why? Uh, and then they look at their, at their family member and see nothing but fanaticism. And, uh, so I think there's needs to be a balance, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, um, like when I would recommend somebody run or go to a weightlifting gym or play baseball on a regular basis, something that is physical, um, because we are, you know, when we look at the at the life uh, that we have in the church, um, 
I remember once we had a group of college students come from one of the area Christian colleges, and and during uh, one point when I came out of the altar to bless everyone, I saw all of these students standing there with their heads down and their eyes closed, kind of like they would do in their church when the pastor says, let us pray, and they put their hands down and they close their eyes. And so... Uh, when I came out to give the sermon, I called their attention to the fact that orthodoxy is, is very much a visual faith. And it's a faith that, in, that, that takes in um, all the senses, you know. So uh, it's not just for God that we offer incense before the Lord. Uh, it's for ourselves because we're smelling the incense. and. The incense transforms the space that we're in into a heavenly realm. Um, when uh, it's interesting that when we have miraculous icons, mercy streaming icons, which I know one of them that is the most uh, remarkable one that I'm aware of today is the Iveron icon of Hawaii. Uh, the original disappeared. It's a large one, and uh, it just Nobody knows what happened to it. And the caretaker of that icon was murdered and martyred, essentially. So, um, meanwhile, many, many years later, a small paper icon in a frame in the home of a, of a man in, uh, in Hawaii started flowing forth myrrh. And I have seen that. It's been here. Both of those icons have been here. And to look at a paper icon where there's myrrh flowing from it and be able, and so much that you get little vials of it so that the priest or others can bless themselves with it um, is amazing, especially when you think of what would happen if you took a paper icon and poured a little bit of olive oil on it. It would bubble. It would ruin the paper icon. And so here is an icon that is paper that's flowing forth myrrh, and it's been doing that for years. And interestingly enough, it smells like roses. I actually had opportunity to, to, to venerate that icon. It showed up at the 40th anniversary of the repose of uh, Father Seraphim Rose in uh uh, and I happened to be there, uh, glory to God. And yeah, I, I came up and the, the fragrance was mm -hmm. significant and really beautiful. The first time I, um, I came uh, in touch with that icon, the original one, was when it was at St. Nicholas Cathedral in Seattle. And, and we went over there to venerate it. And we got out of our car at the par in the parking lot and we could smell the, the, uh, the roses. Then we found out that the roses were not only, or the icon was not near us. You had to go up the stairs uh, of the parish hall, which was behind the church, and then go down a hallway and turn right. And there it was. It was brought down into the cathedral later on. Mm -hmm. And yet we could smell it out there. And it's not like an overwhelming types of an odor. It's it's this odor that just, uh, it's said that it is what heaven smells like, mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to uh, sulfur, 
of the of of Satan of the devil. Right. And I know that priests, you know, that have done exorcisms oftentimes will smell sulfur, burning sulfur. Mm. And so, um, what I'm thinking too about in the lives of the saints, the especially when when relics are discovered or or anything like that, they they, they often talk about a sweet fragrance accompanying the yeah. the relics, the uncorrupted relics of a yeah. saint. Yeah, yeah, that's very common. Yeah, and uh, so I would have to say that you know, going back to the services, that when a priest or when when we're in the service and the priest is using incense. Um, we're making the sign of the cross, which is a physical move, uh, movement. We are kissing the icons. Uh, so we're having, uh, we're bringing our whole body into the worship experience. It's not just sitting there watching some minister preach from a pulpit. Um, it, it's about entering in with all the senses, hearing, hearing the choir chanting, um, touching, uh, touching the icons, touching our forehead when we make the sign of the cross, uh, the, the smell of the incense, uh, the, uh, the, all, every, all the senses are brought into play in Orthodox worship. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and really only the Orthodox can say that because that's the way it is. Mm-hmm. 